This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Indigenous fire management is changing to include the evolving forces that spark the most damaging fires. In addition to traditional knowledge, indigenous fire experts are embracing new technologies to reduce what appears to be increasing wildfire threats. And they're also recruiting the next generation of experts to help solve the crises they're in line to inherit. We'll hear about the global work to pass on indigenous best practices coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador has apologized to Inuit people in northern Labrador for the harm suffered in residential schools. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, Andrew Fury said in his official apology that the provincial government failed to protect Indigenous children in those schools. I extend this apology to the students their families, and to the people of Manitoba. We are sorry. Premier Andrew Fury has been touring Inuit communities along Labrador's northern coast over the past week. He is making six stops where he will offer apologies to residential school survivors and their families. Fury told them that the provincial government turned a blind eye and neglected its responsibility and duty as a government. So today, with a heavy heart, I respectfully and humbly offer an apology to the students of Nunatuavut who attended residential schools in Newfoundland and Labrador. Fury acknowledged that many children were separated from their families and their communities and sent to the schools where their connections to their culture, language and families were degraded. Many of the survivors of the five schools in the region shared their stories of sexual and physical abuse or neglect. When former Prime Minister Stephen Harper apologized in 2008, he excluded people in Newfoundland and Labrador because the five schools in the region were not funded by the Canadian government. But that changed in 2016 after a class action lawsuit. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. A new children's book in the Tlingit language was celebrated at a recent gathering in Juneau, the first of its kind in decades. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride tells us, it's the first of a nine-part series. Do you all agree this book is beautiful, huh? Tlingit and Haida's President Richard Peterson held up the book to show off the illustrations by two Tlingit artists, Nick and Kelsey Foote. The book is called Kahanta, which means orphan in Tlingit, a story about a girl taken in by a powerful family and through her struggles learns life lessons about the tribal values of respect. Peterson wishes he had had a book like this to read when he was a boy. We didn't have these opportunities. And it may not make sense because certainly we had more elders, we had more first language speakers, but we know because of things like boarding schools and historic trauma, there was a lot of shame and people telling us that we couldn't proudly be who we are. But students from the Tlingit Culture, Literacy and Language program were full of pride as they performed at the celebration. Joel Maserve, a Tlingit language instructor, says the new book will help learning become more meaningful. 
These kids are so fortunate to see themselves in their teachers, in their curriculum, in our books, and in their community. If you're looking for the English version, it doesn't exist. Kunay Lance Twitchell says the language needs to stand on its own. He worked with a team of elders to produce the book that included George Davis, Marge Dutson, and Ethel Mackinnon. I thought of Marge, and I thought of George, and I thought of Ethel, and how much I wish I could show this to them. But Kunay produced a video of the book so everyone can both see and hear the story. <laughs> In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Wildfires in Canada this year scorched about the same amount of land as all the fires burned in that country during the past seven years combined. Australia's wildfire season is getting off to an early start, forcing hundreds of evacuations. Officials there worry this year could be worse than the deadly and unprecedented fires of 2019. As the global trend moves toward longer and more intense fire seasons, Indigenous fire experts are working to educate and recruit a new generation of fire management professionals. They see a need to include knowledge about climate change along with traditional methods as a means to turn around a troubling trend. They advocate for collective Indigenous-informed practices to manage and heal landscapes on a global scale. Today, we'll talk with new and veteran fire management practitioners. As always, you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. Are there young people in your community doing fire management work? Let us know at 1-800-99-NATIVE. All of our guests today are joining us from Santa Fe, New Mexico, where they are attending the Indigenous Peoples Burning Network annual workshop. The event is being held at the tribally owned Hotel Santa Fe. Victor Stephenson is the lead fire practitioner of the Fire Sticks Indigenous Alliance. He's Tagalaka descent. Hello, Victor. Thanks for joining us and welcome to New Mexico. Hello, and thanks for the welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Charity Batiste is a student at the University of Oklahoma. She is Alabama Cushara. Charity, thanks for joining us too. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. And Ryan Reed is an Indigenous fire management professional and a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. He is Karak, Hoopa, and Yurok. 
Hi, Ryan. Welcome. Hi, Keyshawn. Appreciate you having me on here. Appreciate all of you folks joining us today, taking time out of the conference to to be guests on our show. And Victor, let's go ahead and start with you. You are from Australia. That's the lower hemisphere where fire season is just now getting started. What is your country facing when it comes to wildfires? Yeah, it's just um, a situation that just goes round and round in circles because of the past practices um, just don't get changed, you know, with the clearing of landscapes and you know, the wrong fire management practices and also the wrong land management practices. Um, and, you know, the Western land management is, you know, has really got us into these um, problems. And that's the same, I think, on a global scale. And, you know, it's not about blaming. It's just about um, practices that haven't worked that are that are caused by colonization. And, you know, it's made our landscape more flammable. And, um, you know, the solutions that they're applying is just putting steroids on what already hasn't worked. And we're still yet to see, um, you know, uh, them really taking on the right way of managing the land by putting people back in the landscape intimately to to take care of the land with fire and without fire in different um, indigenous land management ways. And, you know, we're facing um, more worse fires into the future because since the 2020 wildfires in Australia that we had that the whole world um, saw, um, they haven't done anything in regards to changing the ways to look after the land as um, to what we expect from the Indigenous perspective. And now we're we're hitting to the point now of um, wildfires coming again and coming early into the country. They're still not listening or um, to Aboriginal people, but yet only to blame it on climate change. And, you know, from our perspective, after those 2020 fires, um, these new rounds of fires that are coming, for me, I feel, you know, you can't go blaming it on climate change now, even though that we are getting changes in climate, it really boils down to ignorance now. And, and the fact of um, not changing practices and not even trying to look at training, you know, the next generations of fire practitioners in the future that are, are going to be caring for the land a lot more and, and bringing back the resilience of country and the health of landscapes. And, you know, if, although our Indigenous fire practices have come a long way in Australia and we've, you know, we've quite got a lot of knowledge around that and we do have programs and communities that are doing fire, the general mainstream of the country is still very ignorant to that. And until we start to see, you know, um, vital changes of creating more employment and a whole new division of land carers um, instead of firefighters, although we still need our firefighters in the future, um, we're never going to see um, that ray of hope of um, showing, um, you know, how we can actually start bringing down the risks of this and start showing the improvements that can lead us in the right direction to ultimately seeing that, um, you know, um, you know that, that there's going to be a lot more hope in dealing with this in the future. All right. Victor, you mentioned that um, not much has changed since those horrible fires four years ago with regard to how fires are being managed in Australia. But obviously, you've learned something and the people that you work with have learned something. So what is it that Aboriginal people in Australia know and understand about land fires that other folks apparently don't seem to know or, or don't seem to have a much interest in learning? Well, it's the the intimacy of the land. It's all the fine detail. With uh, when we burn country, it's about reading the land and you know all the different trees and where fire belongs at different times of year and the different soil types. 
And in the modern sense, it's also how we apply fire to change landscapes as well in the terms of healing country and bringing back its identity. And just within that alone is, you know, to, to train a, a fire practitioner um, to be able to read landscapes and understand the right timing that aligns with the animals breeding, with the uh, understanding the flammability of plants and burning. You're uh, also applying, you know, being able to be adaptive with your fire fire um, ignition and planning and putting fire in country um, due to different sicknesses. It's all very, a whole complex layer of skills, although it's quite logic. And for us to train a practitioner, you know, my some of my lead practitioners now that are training other communities have taken six years, three to six years to learn how to do that. So, you know, in the Western way, you know, they you can't just do like two weeks of fire training and rolling up a hose and fighting a fire and then out, out you go to light the fire up. That's just, it's just not how it works with okay. understanding how we need to look after the land. So it's far more complex. So, you know, it, it sounds like it, it's, it definitely does sound a lot more complex. And Victor, what is the disconnect? Why is it that uh, these Western approaches or, or these folks that are managing fires there in Australia, why aren't they more receptive to some of this indigenous knowledge that, that your folks have? Oh, look, there's a whole range of reasons, you know, and, you know, and of course, you know, you know, one of the reasons is, is, you know, some of the ugly ones, as we all know, you know, is that they don't want to give people the opportunity to lead in spaces. And, you know, there's, there's that, um, that fear. And as you know, we just, you know, we're flat out just getting a voice in parliament in Australia, you know, we, we failed in just getting, to, to be heard and a voice in Australia and you know and it's just they don't listen to us and because mm -hmm. there's a false fear there's a false fear that if they allow Aboriginal land management on the land then mining companies won't be able to extract because we want to care for the land there's a false fear that national parks um, positions that they lose their jobs there's a fear that that if Aboriginal people look after the land that um, people might lose their houses there's all this ridiculous false fear that is untrue and and that's that's part of the sickness of modern society today is that closed mind and um and the fact that um we're dealing with that is is a real issue because you know the reason why we have problems with our land today and all of these problems that are um, happening with our environment is because of people it's because of our social structures so that's one of the biggest challenges of all and you know, we could go out there, light fires, and you can see the benefits. And and, and we work with many non-Indigenous people on, on, you know, in a minority that that support us. But on a big scale, on a mainstream scale, uh, you know, there's this false fear and this control. And and until we can get past all of that and just um, work together to just get the solutions happening, um, we're never going to be able to solve the solutions with them. Um, with that kind right. of leadership in, in our countries and also within other countries that struggle with the same problems with policies and governments, you know. Victor, tell us more about these indigenous practices that you advocate for. And for instance, right now, you're coming into this fire season, it looks like it could be really bad. Uh, in a perfect world, if, if you folks could have control over these management issues and, and run things the way that you would like to see them run, what would you do differently? How would you approach these fires coming up in a different context and a different strategy? Oh, yeah. In a perfect world, um, it would be, um, you know, getting our training and mentorship program right across the board to all the regions to help them to build their capacity 
and to um, help them do their work plans to get out on country and, and it'll be full-time job all year round and, and looking after the land and taking care of it. And it wouldn't be fire trucks just turning up to burn one paddock at a time. It would be people walking through the country like gardening and taking care of it and, and not just fire, but also in harvesting techniques that are um, that are there to um, encourage the health of the landscapes and not to take away the threat, which is as has always seen. And building also the um, the education within all the communities and understanding all of that, and and that the local communities see the benefits and how it feeds into schools and education and how to see it differently, and and also the benefits of healthy landscapes as well that feed to support agriculture projects and showing how that knowledge is supporting changing agriculture and improving livelihoods and all those things. Because if we're doing this through indigenous lens, we're making the country healthy, which also solves lots of problems, including bringing down the wildfire threat. And it all boils down to the identity of landscape. And that's that's where you know we need to be training the practitioners because at the moment on a global scale and even on a national scale, um, people are not skilled to manage the land the way it has been managed for thousands of years with people living with that country. And we need to rebuild that skill base. And and we've already started to do that on a small scale with the great success. All right. but we need Victor, to start to do that on a Thank you so much. Uh, this is really eye-opening. Victor Stephenson, uh, he's in Santa Fe, New Mexico this week, all the way from Australia, sharing his indigenous knowledge with regard to fire management. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. A historic cash settlement for four northern tribes comes after decades of legal fights. And more than a century and a half after the federal government's dishonorable treaty that forced the tribe to turn over land. We'll hear about that and other notable land disputes on the next Native America Calling. The Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no-cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org slash tribalmuseumsday. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. You are listening to Native America Calling. We're focusing on the next generation of Indigenous fire management experts and the traditional knowledge they offer to offset destructive wildfires. These are young people who will have to deal with the effects of climate change on indigenous populations around the world. Is there a young person in your family working as a seasonal firefighter or perhaps learning to be a traditional fire practitioner? Give us a call. Join this conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Let's go ahead and take our first call of the day now. We have Chanupa, who is listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, hello, Sean. Thank you for allowing me to come on. You know, to Victor, Victor, it's a good day the way you express your heart's feeling, man. Good job, mate, as they say in Australia. <laughs> One of the things we have here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, we have two coal healers left amongst the Oglala Lakotas. 
and one of them is Jonathan Yellowhorse, and the other one is uh, Reno Grassroot. These two old men used to teach our people, and they still teach the youth how not to play with fire because once a fire takes off, they say, meaning that if you play with the fire, you're going to burn all our sacred medicines up, and then we're going to have to wait for years for them to come back. And so when he talked about that understanding about how the earth was really, you know, purified in itself because a lot of these fires are man-made, nobody disciplines themselves to understand that fire is one of the things that it's a spiritual thing that we all have in our hearts. So thanks to you, Sean, and then when you really come to, if you guys get a chance to come to Pine Ridge, I'll show you. Uncle Reno, and I'll see you show you Uncle John. And then they'll tell you about how they heal people with colds. They're cold healers, and man, they can cure anything. That's what I go to when I go to the sweat lodge. I go see them guys when times get rough. So thank you for having me and taking my comment. Hope you I hope. All right, Chanupa, great call there. And uh, Victor, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to to our caller, Chanupa. He's up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, and. Um, what I hear coming from Chanupa and Victor, I think I heard this from you as well. It sounds like um, in addition to policy and government, it sounds like everyone, all of us can play a role in better fire management practices. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. You know, like it's going to take all of us to to look after this country and but we need to do that in a way that respects people and respects place. And when we say respect place, this means respecting the land the right way that it has been managed for thousands of years. We need to lead with that foundation. And that foundation, if we lead with that, it will bring so much more benefits and, and outcomes for us, you know, other than just fire as well that feeds right through our community. And, um, you know, and and that's going to be so important, you know, um, to, to lead from. And that's what the broader community and non-Indigenous people need to understand. It's not about takeover. It's about it's about um, leading with your heart and when the and have the right foundation to work from, which is the landscape mm-hmm. and its natural form and it's within its natural intelligence, which is what indigenous knowledge is and what we're we're trying to say to everybody, you know, in terms of learning. And when we connect with our brothers, you know, like and sisters globally as well, I think that's going to be an important next step for us all into this because as you can see in the world you know we've got fires everywhere we've got problems within our landscapes everywhere we see a social breakdown as well you know many in many other ways that are happening around the world and and um you know there needs to be another level of um of bringing some common sense into this and i think you know combining our, our knowledges and, and 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 getting the voice of our lands to to echo together I think will be a very important um, way forward from here and and to get more support and to start getting the young people um, involved, right. more importantly, to start to get them to take this on as well and to be passionate to ensure that it carries on for generations because it needs to, because we're right. in an intergenerational problem here. It was going to take us hundreds of years to bring back certain forests and to get the land resilient again in some places and and to keep that going on forever is what's going to need to happen. And 
All right. So we need well, to... Victor, I'm sorry. Let's go ahead and bring in a younger perspective now and uh, and learn a little bit more uh, about some of these folks that are also learning more about this work. And uh, it sounds like you've got a, a standing invitation there to Pine Ridge, South Dakota, Victor, to learn more about some of the, the fire management issues up there on Pine Ridge. So uh, interesting caller we took there a minute ago. Let's bring in Charity now, Charity Batiste. And again, she's a student at the University of Oklahoma, OU, and she's Alabama Cushada, and she's there in Santa Fe this week. And Charity, tell us about the workshop there. Uh, what are you learning about indigenous fire management? Uh, learning um, you know, like as a younger person coming in, um, you know, I've just tried to be open-minded to um, really what everybody has to say. Um, and, you know, I um, have a lot of experience in the, you know, field work and um, the wildland firefighting and the prescribed burning. Um, but really what I've been trying to pay attention to is more of like the policy and um, the things that go into, um, you know, all the funding that you need to receive. And, um, you know, I've just been um, very open-minded to hear from other tribes and even people from across the country about how, you know, they're managing their lands and um, the traditional aspects that go into to, you know, for their culture specifically. Well, it sounds all really fascinating, Charity. And you mentioned policy, learning about policy. And I know there's an acronym, G-I-S, G-I-S. Just what, what does that stand for? And tell us more, how does that factor in to what you know and you understand about fire management issues? Um, yeah, so I first got into GIS, um, you know, shortly after I started um, my journey in wildland fire. And so my boss, he would tell me, you know, go and um, map these fires or map, you know, map our prescribed burns to track our progress. And that's really where I got introduced to it. Um, GIS is just, um, you know, geographic information system. So what you're doing is you're taking um, data and then, you know, you're just putting it in the maps. And so um, it just helps us to track our progression and see, you know, how we're growing, um, the, the work that we've been putting, you know, you can kind of see it from a visual perspective. And, um, yeah, so that's that's how I got introduced in the GIS. Now, a lot of people, Charity, they think of, of fire management or firefighting, and you see firefighters in, in different communities, and they're out there with Pulaski's and shovels, and they're clearing debris, and they're, they're mopping up hot spots. But... Is there more to it than that? Uh, what do folks that have never been out there on a fire line or never worked with any fire management issues, what do they need to understand? Um, yeah, so a thing that we talked about a lot is um, there's a lot of fear in fire. And so um, I think it's just good to educate people that, you know, fire was one of the greatest gifts that were given to um, indigenous people. Um, you know, historically fire, you know, it kept us warm, it fed us, um, cared for our lands and, um, so I think that just going out um, while you're doing these wildfires and while you're doing these prescribed burns with the mindset that, you know, like we're also taking care of our lands, you know, this is, um, there's a lot more meaning behind it than just going out there and digging line all day or, you know, mopping up all day. Um, so, yeah, just going in and educating people that, you know, there's a, there's a greater purpose behind the things that you're doing and it's not all just, you know, dirty work. Well, tell us more about what you're studying at OU and what inspired you to go down this path. Uh, yeah, so that's um, what I'm studying at OU is GIS. And so um, 
yeah, I just wanted to use the skills that, you know, I was already using. And before uh, making the decision to go to the University of Oklahoma, I was a social work major. And um, so I really, you know, was thinking, okay, I need to change my degree to something that I can apply to the fire world. And so after having that conversation with myself, I started having conversations with other people. Um, one of the main people who was a big influence, um, you know, my boss, Jesse Bullock, um, uh, the dean of students um, of my department at OU, um, I met her at a climate change conference, and she um, had a good conversation with me. And then also um, the Southern Plains region um, GIS person, uh, Ryan Morrison, and uh, those people were just very influential and um, just really encouraging me to, you know, if, if this is something I want to do, then, you know, go after it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a pretty big shift to go from social work to fire management charity. It must, uh, it, it must be a, an interesting journey for you. And then you're a student right now, but during the summer, are you going out on, on seasonal fire crews and are you, you getting on the lines and, and learning that aspect of the work too? Uh, yeah. So that's really where I started out was, um, you know, I, I didn't get into all the GIS stuff until later on. So really my roots are with the wildland fire program and, that's what I do in the summer. Um, I'll go out on engine crews and, uh, you know, spend my weeks um, at other agencies across the United States, um, helping with wildfire suppression. And have you been on some pretty big fires so far? Um, not too big, not many like type one incidents, but uh, I've got to see a lot of cool things. I've got to see um, a couple, you know, lats and seats, um, do some drops on a fire that I was on. Um, I've got to, see you know hotshot crews come on our fire um yeah it's just it's just a learning experience um you know from when i started and you know it's going to keep being a learning experience you know i don't think um as i think even victor would agree with this that you never stop learning um mm -hmm. in the fire world and uh charity are there a lot of other women out there uh doing seasonal firefighting during the summer months um, I really have only came across a handful of other women, um, who are fighting, but I know there are many, many women that, um, do. And just recently, you know, I've been introduced to the TREX program and I know they have, um, some burning for indigenous women specifically. And so, um, that's something that I try to encourage indigenous women around me, um, you know, don't be afraid to. Don't be afraid to just jump in the water, you know, um, mm -hmm. don't be afraid um, because it is a, you know, predominantly male field. And so you're going to run into men who are going to say, oh, you know, uh, women can't, women can't carry the chainsaw or women can't, you know, do this. Women can't keep up. But um, I just try to encourage, you know, everyone around me, especially younger women, um, you know, don't be afraid to just get in there and get your hands dirty. Well, Charity, when you hear comments like that, oh, a woman can't carry a chainsaw or, or can't use a Pulaski or something like that, I mean, how does that make you feel? And more importantly, perhaps, what is it about you as an Indigenous woman, what is it that you can offer this this line of work that nobody else can? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think that um, when hearing those things, it's kind of motivation um, to you know, push even further. Um, and so I know some people would be, oh, that's so discouraging, but, um, you know, you just have to go into it with the mindset that, you know, 
um, that women, you know, we can do the same thing that men do. And, uh, you know, it might take us a little more work, but, you know, we'll get there. And so I think that um, as Indigenous women, you know, uh, just pouring into our culture and pouring into the land, you know, giving back to this land, um, taking care of it, um, it just means a lot being Indigenous and um, dealing with these things. Um, so, yeah, I think as Indigenous women, you know, we just have to continue to be re resilient and um, just push these boundaries. Well, Charity, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today and uh, share a little bit of your personal history and your journey with fire management and uh, best of luck to you going forward. And I also, uh, please stay safe out there, you and uh, all of your other friends who are, who are working out there on the fire lines during the summer months. And I want to bring Ryan Reed into our conversation now. He is also an Indigenous fire management professional, and uh, he's also a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. Ryan, once again, thanks for joining the show and uh, listening to Charity and also listening to Victor. It sounds like there is somewhat of a need for more diversity in fire management. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, thanks again, Victor. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, I think that's one of the issues within our culture uh, amongst all disciplines, but fire particularly. And I think that's why there's that uh, hyper-masculine, materialistic culture that's ingrained within fire suppression and, you know, step in other workforces stemming from that. And so um, it's great to hear Charity speaking up and, and being an Indigenous woman in those spaces and creating space and creating confidence for other uh, women or Indigenous women. And so it, it's great to hear that. And I'm excited to uh, be a part of conversations with folks like uh, Charity as well as Victor. And so um, there's a huge dominant culture of white so supremacy that's been ingrained. And I think that domination over nature has a huge link to that. And, and I think that the, the catastrophic wildfires that we're experiencing, uh, not only in Turtle, Turtle Island, but across the world is based underneath those foundations of removal and erasure of indigenous practitioners, fire, as well as the respect and interconnectedness that us indigenous people have with the landscape. Well, Ryan, what got you started doing traditional fire management? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's in my inherent responsibility. It's always been ingrained in me from when I was born, you know, having conversations with my dad, uh, learning from the people who've walked before me uh, about how the importance of fire and the significance it has on the ecosystem and how we individually or as a family, as, as a community, benefit from fire. And, with it, and so I got that kind of indigenous science laid to me early on. But then at the, simultaneously, we have these catastrophic wildfires, the smoke, the issues, the, the, a sense of, uh, of fear that these large fires during the summers had on us. And so there's a couple of different reasons why. And so, you know, that, that sense of urgency that I got to get into fire suppression as I'm also a wildland firefighter for the U.S. Forest Service, was to keep my community safe. As Victor said, it is that uh, fire suppression in the, in the wildland firefighters are necessary after 100 and 150 years of fire suppression, but also we need to start to trans put effort to transform the culture, 
to have that proactive management. And that starts with indigenous leadership. That starts with indigenous practitionership. And so there's a lot of times that our, our knowledge has been extracted from us currently and in the past. And so us next generations are doing a way to, to structure and set ourselves up for, for success and, and re, reclaiming the land, reclaiming our sense of identity that's connected to being stewards of the land. Indigenous fire management practices, methodologies, philosophies. That's what we're talking about here today. It's a Friday on Native America Calling, and we're waiting for your call. Please add to this conversation, add to this discussion. Maybe you've been a firefighter, or maybe you're worried about fire management issues in your community. Tell us about them. 1-800-996-2848. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Are you a welder? For over 40 years, D&R Tank, who support this show, have provided tanks and tank maintenance to communities throughout the Southwest and is currently hiring experienced welders. Info at 505-873-1101. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Traditional indigenous fire management, that's the topic. How is your tribe using fire to manage longer and more devastating wildfire seasons? How are elder fire practitioners passing down traditional fire knowledge? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848 to share your thoughts. Let's go to the phones now. Jen, listening online in East Texas. Hello, Jen. Thanks for calling in. Thank you very much for accepting my call. I, I'm just so very proud of Charity. I have to send a special shout out to her because I was raised near the Alabama Cachada, and I've always loved it. I always go back there once a year for the powwow, and I camp out under those pine trees. And I think that firefighting is in the best hands of the new indigenous firefighters. And it, that that's where it should be. So thank you, Charity. I love the idea that you're taking this on and, and more uh, women and girls will follow your path. And, um, you know, the Cherokee are from matriarchal society, so women are very important in that. And thank you, Charity, and best wishes. Well, Charity, you've got a fan in, listening in East Texas, and her name is Jen. Feel free to respond. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for, you know, your encouraging words. And um, we do appreciate um, your appreciation for our longleaf um, and our pine trees because those are um, culturally significant to us. And so, yeah, we just I just want to say thanks for taking time out of your day to um, give those encouraging words. All right. Ryan, I want to go back to you and listening to you – you know, you're a graduate student there at Berkeley, but it sounds like you've also learned a lot of, of your understanding of fire management practitioners from your family, from elders in your community. And, and I'm curious, is it ever a struggle to balance what you've learned at home with what you're learning in the classroom, just the approaches and the philosophies and, and just the attitudes that you have to manage? In short, absolutely. And 
you know, I think just starting from where I learned the things I do is that, you know, I live and we live a shattered existence, right, due to colonization, due to eco-cultural genocide, due to boarding schools, right? So a lot of my learning, there's always a lot of, of salt that's intertwined with it through gen- intergenerational transfer of knowledge and trauma. And so it's a lot of uh, trying to sift through to get to the good. And it, it's a difficult process, and it's no one's fault. Um, and so that's that's a difficult route. It's a tough one and a lot of uh, loneliness, and it's a lot of hurt and pain. Uh, but that's what it takes to, to get to a, a world of healing. But when I'm balancing that with, with going to, into higher education and furthering education, further in my education to open opportunities, it's difficult because you hear a lot of the dominant narrative that Victor was talking about. That's the same stuff that's ingrained within cultures, ingrained with academia. And so a lot of times I'm doing this work with my community and trying to push the narrative of indigenous leadership and sovereignty. But then right at the forefront in the classroom, you have professors, you have students who are just taking the colonial torch and trying to uh, uh, push that narrative that really puts indigenous leadership uh, back into the periphery, uh, that al- that sense of alienation from the landscape. And so it's a lot of, you know, beating against the wall and no one's listening, no one's opening up. And it's a difficult trait. So the people who are hearing, whether it's non-natives or might be listening to this, you know, open up, open up, right? Be open and expand their knowledge systems and what they're reproducing, because that's going to be uh, that's the next generations, right? Even if you're non-native, that's the next generations who us as indigenous people have to work with in the future. And other folks, other native students in the classrooms right now, keep keep talking your narrative. Keep talking about where you come from and what you're about because that's that narrative that's going to be being forced. It's going to be looking to you. There's going to be people wanting to hear that in the future. And so be proud of it and keep walking forward with it. And Ryan, how about state and federal decision makers? Do you find them receptive and supportive of the indigenous practices that we're talking about today? Right. And so, yeah, a little bit. I'm a program director for my a new organization called Fire Generation Collaborative. And one of our things that we do is speak about fire policy and how indigenous leadership is necessary. And I think it's a lot of in the conversations after not too long that I've had them, I, might, I have to admit, but I think there is a sense of needing to hear, right? The, the, the billions of dollars, the, the issues that are coming with it ecologically, economically, there's a force of nature that is saying that we need an alternative strategy, right? And I think that a lot of folks are starting to shift towards indigenous leadership, but there's also that neglect of funding. There's a neglect of uh, prioritizing and centering indigenous folks. And so I would say yes, but also no. And And I think it's, starts with conversations, but also it starts with practice and it starts with something tangible. And climate change, Ryan, how does that factor in to the work you do tackling wildfires? Yeah, climate change is a whole beast, right? I think there's sometimes a neglect and then there's sometimes an overemphasis that there's it's a combination of climate change as well as colonization that are uh, funneling and facilitating the uh, the violence that are going with these wildfires. And so, you know, we have prolonged summers. We have more intense fires due to climate change. And so that has a huge factor on the ground. I think a lot of uh, wildlife firefighters can see this, especially if you've only been in it for a couple of years. But over time, you're seeing fires that we've never are used to, right? So when it comes to trying to take care of communities, 
take care of ecosystems, that the climate component is is a huge beast within it. Ryan, we had a caller who asked a question. Are any members of the military trained to help fires or do they do fire management? Yeah, I would say there is, um, just because I think that there's a huge translation. I've, I've met with folks that um, within my line of work that there are veterans who don't really know how to uh, fit back into the regular workforce when you, when you are come out of the military. So there is a, a sense of um, place for veterans to come in. I think it's a great transition. Um, but yeah, in short, yeah, there's definitely are. Okay. I used to fight fire back in the day, and I know that there were some crews that came from correctional facilities. Is that still the case? Yeah. Yep. They're, uh, they're primarily underneath the Cal Fire, from my experience. I'm sure it goes elsewhere, so I don't want to neglect that. But there are folks who are um, inmates um, who, who do a lot of great work, and I think that um, there's a lot more justice that needs to be served in that route because they do a lot of hard work and uh, with little to no benefit from it. And so that's a, a large issue that is hopefully gets better as time goes on. But um, I think everyone needs to understand that issue as well. Thanks, Ryan. Victor, I want to go back to you. We're, we're talking with some younger people that are uh, on this journey towards fire management uh, mastery and professionalism. And you've got a young person who's sitting next to you right now. Tell us more about him. Young man here, Dallin, sitting next to me, and he's part of the the, um, the workshops we're doing here. And um, when I saw him for the first time, I saw his eyes light up, and I could see that um, you know that um, that he had a great passion, and I wanted to um, share that with everybody. Yeah, hello. Um, yeah, I'm Talon Davis, um, and I work with a little bit of background. Me is I I'm a land steward with Cultural Fire Management Council out of Northern California, primarily on the Yurok Reservation. I am also a Hoopa tribal member and affiliated with Yurok tribe. But um, yeah, I mean, where I come from is um, putting the work on the ground. Um, I mean, I'm a student of the land and uh, just getting out there burning. I mean, for one, I guess I'd like to mention our our little home base crew. We don't, we don't really like the term firefighting at all. Um, we come up with our own slogan, which is uh, we light them and guide them. We don't fight them. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at. You know, we we all see fire as as a relation, as a tool. And and for me personally, I, I don't think I chose fire. I know ch fire chose me and, um, and, and knew I was listening. And I, I just try to continue to listen and be a student of it. And I and I see and I feel like no other like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I've never felt that feeling doing anything else the way that I do with fire and um, it just takes me over and I just allow my body to be a vessel and um, so it's, I'm just happy to be here um, with Victor and and I'd also like to mention that Ryan Reed on the other um, side of this is uh, my first cousin so yeah mm -hmm. we have a lot of um, you know family and community culture that that directly thrives through our blood and you know it's something when I put fire on the ground. I feel like I have all that knowledge from the past thousands of years. And that's amazing right there. And um, I also wanted to touch in on, you know, with that, you know, is, are people listening to us? Is this, is this um, kind of pendulum swing happening? And, and I definitely would like to um, say from, you know, through my Trex experiences with many peoples of walks of life, um, 
you know, I've been through multiple treks and, and yeah, I hear people telling me out there while we're burning, man, I just want to take everything you guys show us and, and are teaching us. And I want to take this back to my agency. And so that tells me right there that the work that we're doing is, is working. It's there's, you know, steps being taken and we might have a, a long journey ahead of us in this vision, but, um, but as long as we are all taking action individually and, and as communities, um, you know, healing is happening. We, we see it, we feel it, we know it. And uh, it's just something I'm so happy to be a part of. So uh, thank you. Well, Talon, I really appreciate what you say about fire choosing you, that you didn't choose fire. Because I, I hear that a lot from people who really have found their calling in life. And, and this new approach, this new definition, we light them and guide them as opposed to you know, referring to it as firefighting or something like that. But I do want to ask uh, as a young person, because there is some danger here in this kind of work. And uh, does that ever discourage you or, or what do you have to do to, to manage that risk? Um, I mean, I, I see it being discouraging to people around me at times, but um, ultimately no, um, because the generally the, the, the people that I'm around that are doing it on the ground with me, um, we just, we, we know it to be the right thing. And, and we know there are those dangers in fire, but for us, um, we all have that high respect for it. We, we know it as a relationship. We know it as a spirit. And, um, and you can't, you can't go about fire without having that in your mindset. That's, I mean, that's how you, I think maybe the steps to get away from that fear is not looking at it how it's always been viewed but starting to look at it as as a spirit being as a brother as a sister however you could connect with it um and that will help turn help turn the ball even more on um being able to not see those dangers as such dangers but seeing that fire as continuing to help um keep those dangers Thank you, Talon. And Victor, back to you. You are in Santa Fe, New Mexico this week. You live in Australia, but you travel all over the world and you work with indigenous populations across the globe. And what are you learning from other indigenous fire practitioners on the international level? Well, what I'm learning on international level is that we all um, have so many similarities. And you know, not just similarities in people, you know, in, in the sense of we have the similarities in our same social issues, you know, getting our youth um, connected to the knowledge, um, the same problems with the broader communities, you know, the same challenges with governments as what you're hearing um, on this show today. And, you know, the same problems with our land as well, with the degradation of um, our native um, plants and animals and, and, and knowledge that goes with that as well. And, you know, and this something that um, that are really that's really powerful that's come out of all this learning, and that is the similarities within landscapes. And we all know as Indigenous people that we have similarities with each other, and within our cultures and our and our responsibilities to the land and the way that um, we you know we are structured um, at being connected to nature, and everyone can see that and have seen that for a long time. But what's more um, more um powerful you know that you know if you can see similarities in different cultures and in indigenous peoples then 100 percent there's similarities in landscapes and within that um is a language of the land that can really echo and amplify the solutions that need to happen 
for our young people to follow on into the future. And, you know, and like Charity said, you know, you never stop learning and that's very true. And I've never stopped learning fire. And what that statement also tells you is that it's a formula to the land. And if we give this to the young people, then they're going to improve it in the future. And that's why it's so important that this knowledge continues to grow and will continue to grow because it's so big. And on a global scale, that's what I'm seeing um, as the main objective here for, for this, because overall, if we get this right in terms of um, getting the capacity to build this voice even stronger, then we'll be starting to demonstrate, you know, you know, our real relationship of humanity to this planet, you know. And Victor, what would you like to see happen in order to enable more Indigenous people to take up this task of wildland fire management? What I'd like to see a lot more of is, is um, you know, us connecting and supporting each other and um, and echoing that voice because you know that, you know, within Indigenous peoples in every country are, all, are now all minorities. And that's... um. That's a problem on, on our own, you know, in countries. And um, and so if we're supporting each other and and showing, you know, amazing breakthroughs of, of stories of relationships within lands across this globe and solutions that are working, not just in one place, but in other places, then, um, you know, and benefits that come from that, then I think um, that's going to um, provide a whole lot more um, interest and support around that. And um, and I think um, that's what we're going to need against against um, the you know the monster that we're up against you know which is right. the the governance systems and the AI and the technologies that are trying to take over our responsibilities you know we really need All to right. get grounded here. All right, uh, Victor. I'm sorry we're out of time. We're going to have to wrap it up. But I want to thank all of our guests that joined us here today to talk about indigenous fire management practices. And please join us here on Native America Calling next week for another lineup of conversations. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Joe McPolin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. Have a safe weekend. I'm Sean Spruce. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.